This is the Pro-America Report on The Answer San Diego. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Ed Martin here on the Pro-America Report, and we have some work to do today. Thank you. I know you think we're going to talk about COVID mandates and all that other stuff, but we're not. Well, we will later. Uh, But I mostly want to talk to you about 9-11, September 11, 2001. What you need to know today, what you need to know about 9-11 is 9-11 proved American exceptionalism. The actual day of 9-11 Proved American exceptionalism. And insofar as we can focus on what happened that day, we will never ever lose our exceptionalism. And a little bit of what I'm saying is borrowed or at least uh, shaped by two different lectures that I heard uh, Dean Pete Peterson the dean of the School of Public Policy at Pepperdine University. Dean Peterson was in Washington, D.C. this past week, and he gave two lectures. I happened to see both. And in the first one, it was a a longer um, recounting of his experience as a young professional working in New York City on the day of 9-11. And he talked about that at some length. And then in the second talk, he, he drew out a little bit further in the description about how his own uh, calling to change from a ambitious young businessman uh, to a guy pursuing public policy and in a, at a Christian school uh, because of a sort of calling that he had. It was really a spectacular bookends conversation. Dean Pete Peterson of the School of Public Policy in, uh, at Pepperdine University. So here's what I want you to know. What you need to know is that 9-11, now you may, may remember, I've talked about it some, I grew up in a little town in New Jersey, about 50 miles from the Twin Towers. And I took the train from my little town into Newark and then into Jersey City to go to high school. And so I went to high school in Jersey City about, I don't know, 10 blocks from the Hudson River and across the Hudson River was the Twin Towers. And so we'd stand at the corner of Grand and Warren, two streets in Jersey City. You could look down one street and you'd see the Twin Towers looming above and you look down the other to the side and you'd see the Statue of Liberty, extraordinary place to grow up. So when 9-11 happened, I was living in St. Louis, uh, and I was, um, uh, so I was far from where I grew up, but I had lots of friends, friends that were cops in Jersey City and Bayonne and Hoboken, friends that worked in New York City on the stock exchange and in Midtown, all over the place. We had a buddy from uh, college who was a year older than me who was in the towers and is long gone, you know, gone now. Uh, and, um, you know, a bunch of lots of people from my high school who were gone, nobody in my grade, nobody in my graduating class, but in the one above and below and all lots of people. Anyway, it was, a. but here's what you need to know after nine 11, the stories that captivated everyone in the country, but especially in some way, the, the community in and around New York, because you had friends that knew a cop uh, from Staten Island. You had friends that knew co- uh, firefighters from Brooklyn that were gone, right, that, were, that died. And, and the stories that were told in the days after of the conduct on that day, the heroic nature was so perfectly American, You know, the stories of the firefighters that rushed to the buildings, right? The stories of the off-duty retired Marine from up in uh, Connecticut who drove down in his Porsche. He was about 40 years old or 45 years old, 42 years old, put on a cut a haircut, put on his old uniform, drove down. And he's the one with another guy that found the last two people that were alive in the uh, Port Authority uh, cops in the rubble. 
All these examples, examples of people who, uh, well, like on the uh, Flight 93, the, the, the guys that stormed the cockpit and took down that plane and died, of course. Let's roll. Is it Todd Beamer? That's his name. These stories that were told over and over. And somehow for people, for me at least, let me talk for me, growing up in that area, you sort of knew, you actually knew somebody's cousin was gone, right? Somebody's uh, uncle was a firefighter. So there was, you know, the the, uh, six degrees of Kevin Bacon was like one degree all the time. And so even though I was then living in uh, Kansas City, I was working in St. Louis on the day of 9-11, but that week it's because we were there for court and I was back living in Kansas City. And um, you'd read about these stories over and over. And the heroic sort of, as as, uh, Pete Peterson called it, civic virtue that was so American. The stories of people, there was a story of a man who stayed with someone who was uh, in a wheelchair and couldn't get out, couldn't go down the stairs, and so he stayed with her. They both were gone. I think it was a boy, a man or a woman, I don't know. All these stories, one after another, of this civic virtue, of people who were rushing to help. It was extraordinary. And again, it proved at its heart, at the heart of America, is that exceptionalism. It, you didn't stop and say, oh, I'm a black firefighter from Brooklyn. Should I go in that building? Uh, you know, some, some of those guys, not are they proud boys in there? If you were a white firefighter from Staten Island, you didn't say, oh, I'm not going in there. That might be black. There was none of that. There was none of the divisions. It was Americans. It was Americans. And it was Americans. And it was, you know, there was, uh, uh, remember, there was a, um, a, a chaplain, a priest that was killed. There was, did you know the first person who was killed? I think this is right. I'm excuse, excuse me, say it correctly. The first member of the firefighters that was killed was killed by a falling body. Think about how haunting that is, right? So in the midst of this evil, in the midst of this terror, in the midst of the fear, there were these unbelievable acts of civic virtue. Uh, that's what Pete Peterson calls it, of running towards the problem of solving the problem of mourning the problem of accurately recognizing what was happening and still plowing through it. And I have to say, I was reading a, um, I was reading an oral history because it's 20 years, obviously a celebration uh, on Saturday, September 11th, 20 years. I was reading an oral history of the, um, it's 20 years ago. It's hard to imagine that we were dominated still then by three main uh, news anchors, I think it was Dan Rather, uh, Peter Jennings, and, and Tom Brokaw. Those were the three. We still had evening news that were sort of dominant voices. And those three spent those days as the faces of this. Remember Rudy Giuliani? Rudy Giuliani, who, you know, even I, who like a lot of his politics and what he does, he's, he's, he's become a, a larger-than-life, sometimes cartoonish character. He actually was back before he was, before 9-11. But on 9-11, he became this quintessential American leader stepping up George W. Bush remember when he came to the pile a few days late a few days later you know came down there you know they'll be hearing from us there was a there was a but they the public acts of civic virtue were extraordinary and they were informed they were formed by what is the best of America of this care for your brother and sister your participation in this community you know there was a a, a rapid sense that uh, of of loss, but also there was a religious mourning. If you if you remember again, it was more some way it feels more powerful because I grew up in the area. There were literally hundreds of of of, of funerals going on over the next couple months. 
I mean, hundreds and hundreds of funerals, bagpipes. You know what's interesting is you can, I listened to it as a book on tape. You can read it. Um, Peggy Noonan has a, a book out a year or two ago on her best columns. It's a compilation of her columns in the Wall Street Journal. Declarations is the name of her column every week. And back then she wrote a lot. She lives in New York City. She wrote a lot about the heroes. She wrote a lot about this civic virtue. It was extraordinary. So there'll be a lot of talk. This, this 9-11 about Afghanistan, Al-Qaeda, Osama, wars that didn't work as well as they should have, this and that and the other. If you just go back and commemorate, and this is what Pete Peterson was talking about, and Pepperdine has this extraordinary uh, event on, on 9-11. They do it every year where they have thousands and thousands and thousands of American flags and, and flags on the lawn in Pepperdine, which is right down in Malibu towards the ocean. They have one for every person who was killed. They put it out there in this extraordinary showing. And you can find pictures if you search on the Internet. But the commemoration of 9-11, as Pete Peterson said, Dean Peterson said, we have to remember it rightly. Remembering it rightly is remembering what we did in response to what happened that was evil and not what happened months and years later and can be debated and talked about, although that all has has meaning, but in particular, capturing the value of the the courage, the, the civic virtue that was displayed by men and women on that day it's really worth doing. And for whatever reason, and for the first time in a long time in a way, as angry as I get when I think about 9-11 and as upset as I get when I go and see the skyline doesn't have the Twin Towers, it, thinking about these acts of civic virtue, it made me happy. It gave me a sense of joy about in hell, in the midst of hell, there was these beacons of light racing towards the scene of destruction. It's a great, it's a great idea. It's a great way to think about it. I salute Pete Peterson uh, for what he did. But when you remember September 11th, as I hope you will, besides being in your prayers, especially in your prayers for the families of those left behind, I just think that way. Think about remembering rightly the great acts of civic virtue that happened as a, as an indicator, a celebration of American exceptionalism. Really worth doing. All right, we'll take a break and be right back. Ed Martin here on the Pro-America Report. Back in a moment. Welcome back. Ed Martin here on the Pro-America Report. I've been interested and looking forward to talking with our next guest. Uh, Dr. Veronica Kirilenko is a PhD in poli-sci. I think it's poli-sci. I'll have to remind myself. And I was looking at your credentials, Dr. Kirilenko, and I was interested because I think your PhD was on modern myth creation in the political process. And it was a, at least a dissertation description is comparing the U.S. and the Ukraine and the Soviet Union. So there's almost nothing better than trying to figure out what's happening with our modern myth creation at this moment in history. So welcome to the program. How are you today? Hi, Ed. Thank you for having me. It's, uh, it's an order. So uh, your piece that ran over in The New American, so thenewamerican.com, and I'll put it up on social media, the Taliban announces China as its, quote, main partner. First of all, I think it was lost uh, pretty quickly in the news. Tell us what the Taliban was announcing and tell us what your analysis is, that what this means. Oh, yes, absolutely. Uh, so, yes, as a result of what looks like a very treasonous and carefully engineered defeat of the secular governments in Afghanistan, America's enemies now, radical Islamists, 
from the Taliban and Chinese Communist Party are now partnering to the mutual benefit. So the Taliban spokesperson, uh, he said last week uh, to one of the European newspapers that, yes, China will be our main partner and represents a great opportunity for us because it is ready to invest in our country and support reconstruction efforts. And uh, it is actually true because the Chinese ambassador to Afghanistan has reportedly confirmed that China is already actively engaged in the reconstruction efforts. Uh, they give Talib, the Taliban millions of dollars for building hospitals, solar power stations, other projects. Uh, and just yesterday, it's been announced that China will provide $31 million worth of food and COVID vaccines uh, to China to Afghanistan, and moreover, China is already sending its engineers um, to, uh, to, to help with Afghanistan to figure out how to use American military equipment that, that was left after the disastrous withdrawal. Uh, then the Taliban said that the new Silk Road Initiative, which, which, was, which, which is uh, very important to China, it's known as uh, the Belt and Road Initiative, uh, will, will be held in hard, hard, high regard by, by the Taliban. And, uh, you know, Beijing has long tried to persuade Kabul to join this initiative, but only now, with anti-American forces at the helm, the project may uh, start moving. So, again, we're uh, talking with uh, Dr. Veronica Kirilenko, uh, Ph.D. in, uh, in um, uh, poli-sci and writing over at The New American. So um, what, what is it? Why would China do better than America did or the Soviet Union did? Meaning the, the Taliban and the people of Afghanistan, they, they resist uh, a relationship with a uh, more powerful sort of frenemy, you know, uh, an enemy, but who wants to be their friend, and they make a mess of it. Why would China do any better? Does anybody, I mean, anybody say that, you know, good luck, China. The Soviets couldn't figure it out, and neither could America for 20 years. Well, well China may actually succeed, because right now uh, the Taliban, as the newly established government, will need some concrete foundation to reassert its recently acquired political power, and Beijing can offer them just that. Uh, namely, uh, what the Taliban needs the most is political impartiality and economic investment. And in turn, uh, Afghanistan has what China most values. It's the opportunities in infrastructure and industry building, areas in which China's capabilities are arguably unmatched in the region. Uh, and it was, it absolutely wants to access, uh, uh, some, some experts say up to $3 trillion uh, worth of untapped mineral deposits that um, Afghanistan has. So, yes, China China has a very good chance um, in Afghanistan. And uh, what what is the what are the chances that China is worried about? I guess China has just under fifty miles of border with Afghanistan on the side of China, the edge of China that's closer to the Uyghurs. Is does anybody? I mean, the the, the Chinese regime has no real time for um, uh, strong Islam in their country within their borders. Uh, is there any expectation that they're? I mean, one one I, I read one of the commentators thought, well, they want to be close to the Taliban because they want to control the border. They don't want people coming in that border what's the reality there is, is there any is there going to be any uh, friction point on that 
Ah, uh, well, well, yes, this this is certainly a possibility. But for China, most uh, um, uh, focuses right now, uh, it, it it's really focused on this Belt and Road uh, Initiative and the uh, and the and the Afghanistan. It's very conveniently located uh, where uh, the new roads can be built, uh, and it will complement uh, the China's existing network through the region and connect it uh, to, 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 to Europe and further. Uh, and once uh, completed, it will boost uh, Beijing Straits with the regional and natural resource uh, extraction of, and, um, in, in Afghanistan. So, uh, uh, again, uh, yeah, again, we're talking with uh, Veronica Kirilenko, uh, Dr. Veronica Kirilenko, a Ph.D., uh, poli sci, and over to New American. She wrote this uh, piece that we're referring to now. So um, is the Taliban, I guess I, this is an odd way to say it, but is the Taliban that stable? Meaning, the ta- is the Taliban likely to be dominated either by... I don't know, uh, ISIS-K, Al-Qaeda, China. I mean, I guess your point is they're going to need something to help them stay in power. Mm -hmm. Uh, Does that make them unstable? Uh, they, they, I, I think they will be stable with this kinds of with this kinds of uh, involvement involvement from from China, which is uh, very much interested in the Afghanistan staying stable and. Uh, with the kind of investment and uh, organizational resources that it can provide, I think uh, it it will be it it will do anything to uh, to to uh, make the Taliban last. Um, uh, one last line of uh, question here. You know, I mentioned earlier referring to your dissertation on on sort of uh, um, myth making. How, how do you, when you watch um, here, and I should say, you know, uh, you're in the D.C. area, you know, you write and, and uh, contribute in different places. When you see how uh, the mass media, the, the mainstream media plus big tech manages the, I call it the narrative machine, but you could just as easily call it the myth making. For example, the Russia, Russia, Russia hoax or the January 6th. Forget about the truth of either of them in terms of any involvement of anybody. It's just what the narrative machine has done is tell one myth, and it's been so effective because it's media as well as big tech, and in some big sense, big government is enforcing it through the, you know, the uh, in the case of January 6th, the, the arrests and, and uh, you know, uh, possible trials. And in the case of Russia, Russia, Russia hoax was the Mueller investigation that went on forever and cost a lot. I, I mean, how do, you, um, how do you see what's happening in terms of the myth-making in this country? Yes, Ed, Ed, you're absolutely right. What media and big tech and and the rest do, they try to just create this very highly emotional, highly irrational reality for ordinary people. And uh, you see how quickly the the narratives change. Uh, yes, one one day they talk about Russia, Russia collusion, and when when it's being totally debunked, uh, they just forget all about it, even though they spend three years talking that about that nonstop. Uh, and then uh, we see what's happening to COVID. It's a mass, mass paranoia, absolutely, of irrational fears. Um, then we see how quickly the narrative from uh, Afghanistan changed, flipped uh, to yesterday news uh, about the 
uh, sweeping mandate that Biden announced. It's nothing but a trick to, to deceive people and to, uh, to, to scare them into submission. Uh, in this situation, when you see one mist uh, changing another very quickly, very abruptly, uh, you, you receive the populace that doesn't know what, what, what's happening. Uh, and despite, uh, you know, the, uh, despite the notion that, um, uh, we were living in the age of information. Information is actually very hard, hard to find. What we're, we're seeing are the myths, and they are very, they are very, uh, they are constructed in a way to produce emotions, not uh, not some uh, reason. And that that's what yeah. what, what what they're doing. That's well, uh, thank you. Yeah, no, it is. It's amazing. Uh, well, thank you for your insight. Uh, Dr. Veronica Kirilenko over at New American. I'll put her piece up uh, uh, published a few days ago. The Taliban announces China its, as its main partner. Thank you for your analysis. And we'll have you back on the show again. Appreciate it. Thank you very much. Ed. Thank you for having me. Oh, uh, you're very welcome. OK, we'll take a break, everybody. And we come back. We've got a lot more. It's Ed Martin here on the Pro-America Report. Don't forget, visit ProAmericaReport.com. ProAmericaReport.com. Be back in a moment. Welcome back. Ed Martin here on the Pro-America Report. Time to check in with Lord Conrad Black, our friend who's on the program frequently. Lord Black, of course, famous as a very successful businessman for decades. Ran newspapers as a publisher, I think, on nearly every continent, all Middle East uh, in Great Britain, also in Australia, uh, the Chicago Sun-Times, and has written histories on uh, Franklin Roosevelt, Richard Nixon, and wrote a book uh, about Donald Trump recently. Welcome, Lord Black. How are you? I'm fine, thanks, Ed. Thank you for inviting me on again. Well, I want to ask you before we get to your piece that ran over to American Greatness about uh, Joe Biden, but I want to ask you about Australia because you you uh, you published uh, newspapers over there and a business over there. The images we've received in the last maybe six weeks of of fairly sophisticated police efforts to sort of track, not sort of, to track people in the in their communities in Australia. It's gotten a ton of attention. What's going on there? Is that is it as, you know, as sort I, of draconian I, I wish as it's... I could answer it. I, I, they, that yeah. doesn't conform to any recollection or knowledge of us, Australia that I have, and I still go there sometimes. I know a lot of people there, and I, I knew the country well. Uh, and, and, you know, they're sort of rugged, can-do people. They're, you know, they're like Americans yeah. and Canadians. They don't, you know, they don't like to be told what to do, and then they're competent and take care of themselves well. It's a rich country, and uh, I, I simply don't understand it. I mean, it, it's... it's uh, it's as if that some antipodean version of, you know, the, the kind of madness that obsesses people of Trump derangement syndrome or something. I mean, I, yeah. I agree. It, it, it sounds like a totalitarian state, and that is not the Australians. They like their freedom. Yeah, I, I had the same experience. I'm, I'm interested because I had the same. I, 25 years ago, I went for five weeks uh, as a kid, you know, and then I went about two years ago for 12 or 14 days, and it's almost the opposite of what I've expected. You just uh, they would be they, they might police each other, meaning they have a lot of interaction with each other and they have their opinions and all. It just is uh, it's uh, amazing to see. All right, let's turn though to your piece uh, here now. You've you've written three books by my count on different presidents, probably more than that. But the headline on your American Greatness piece: Joe Biden is a total failure i i guess it feels like that but you're saying that with some sense of history 
Yeah, and I and I hate to say it. I mean, whoever the president of the United States is, I hope that person does well. You know, the United States is such an important country. And it's a country I like anyway. But uh, you know, I'm not an American, but I but I've lived there a lot and I know the country well and have written about the history of it. But uh, you know, it's a terribly important thing for the whole of Western civilization that whoever is the president of the United States does well. So the fact that I was never any great admirer of Joe Biden's does not mean that I did not wish him to do well. I did. I want, you know, you want the country to do well. Uh, but I, I mean, I hate to say that. I mean, I didn't happen to write that headline, but I don't disown the headline. I mean, in the principal policy areas, we, we, we just look at them in, in, in one sentence. We have uh, inflation moving up dangerously. We have uh, uh, 200,000 people a month entering the country illegally across the southern border. Uh, we have skyrocketing crime rates in almost every big American city. Uh, and, and, and we have this absolute shambles in Afghanistan where the British Parliament, which I'm a member of, by the way, as you can tell from my you know, heavy English accent, uh, <laughs> the, they, you know, the, the British Parliament voted their contempt of the president of the United States. Uh, this is America's closest ally. This, this is the country with whom, uh, you know, there was the close alliance between Churchill and Roosevelt and between Reagan and Thatcher. And uh, for the British Parliament to do that uh, is, is, a, is a, a terrible indication of the low regard in which this president's competence in foreign policy is held. And uh, I, I, I think even COVID now, is, which was his great ally, both in terrorizing the American public with it in the latter days of the Trump era, saying that they wouldn't trust any vaccine of Trump's and so on, and then claiming credit for the vaccine and trying to force the whole country to be vaccinated, um, you know, a 360-degree turn. Uh, it, 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 it's such bungled messaging. Nobody knows what the hell they're trying to do. Uh, Fauci's been thoroughly discredited, so they can't say follow the science anymore. And 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 the the country is confused and annoyed even on that issue. Now, I I, I, I wish I could say that President Biden is a total failure was a misstatement and disown the headline, but I can't. I mean, what has he succeeded at? Well, and and I, so I want to ask you from the perspective of your you wrote the bo- a book Franklin Delano Roosevelt Champion of Freedom and well regarded on on what he did and how he turned America and all. But one of the things he did was sort of change America in terms of the of the New Deal and you know massive shift in how uh, government fit into people's lives. Biden came that, in talking that, about that is being, true, but, but yeah, sorry, go ahead. No, well, Biden came in saying he was going to be an FDR in terms of this massive trillions of dollars. It's still out there. They might try to pass. I, I, I guess is. I mean, is there any chance that stuff's going to happen? I mean, is it? Is there? I mean, he looks more and more like a, a, a weak Carter than he does a, a, a new FDR. Yeah, absolutely right. Uh, look, and just uh, we're not here to talk about Roosevelt particularly, but uh, just in fairness to him, when he was inaugurated, the unemployment rate was over 30 percent, and there was no direct relief for unemployed people. You didn't have unemployed payments. Uh, and what he did was he, he rounded them all up into into what we would call today workfare 
for infrastructure. So you had the building national parks and highways, right. inland waterway, the Lincoln Tunnel, you know, Triborough Bridge, uh, uh, and the, you know, the Chicago Midway. It'd be a huge amount of things at at a bargain at a bargain uh, to the to the taxpayers. But it, it got them employed, and he recycled people back into the private sector. And uh, there were no unemployed after 1941. I mean, before the war, there was zero unemployed when Pearl Harbor was attacked. And um, uh, and but I mean, at least it was a plan. I'm not, you know, I, I'm not. I did not write that everything in the New Deal was good, but at least it got them out of the right. depression. It was, you know, it it, it, it was it was. Uh, it gets a high score for crisis avoidance. Biden had no such problem as that. He had a full employment economy, a low tax country. The whole economy was purring like a tabby, and he's he's made a sham out of that. And and. Uh, I, I was not uh, supportive of President Carter as a president. I, I didn't. I thought he was rather ineffectual, but I, I, I respect him as a person. But um, but it is unfair to him to compare him to Biden. I mean, Biden is everything he's touched is just withered, and he's because he yeah. has this the irrational, unprofessional, and really scandalous free ride from 95% of the national political press. It isn't being focused on. I don't want to crucify the man, but I think, uh, speaking as a person of the media, we have to call things as they are. And, and uh, you know, when he's had a success, I, I'm, I myself have I've mentioned that, and I, I certainly oppose these people who want to impeach him. There's no grounds to impeach him, I don't think. But but, he, but he's just, so far, a very incompetent president, and it's it's worrisome. We're talking with Lord Conrad Black. Uh, again, his uh, piece over at American Greatness, which I'll link to uh, a few days ago, Joe Biden is a total failure. You mentioned in there uh, it can't go on for three and a half years. Um, as you say, I don't think I don't think a normal person uh, uh, who reads the Constitution thinks it's impeachable, even though it's disastrous leadership. But your point is the powers that be in the Democratic Party appear already to be trying to shuffle the vice president out of the deck and bring in someone who might be able to hold the commanding heights of American government. What's this? What do you mean? I mean, are they going to uh, you think about you think Joe Biden will resign this, this from his term? I, I, I've got to be hazardous, you know, it's hazardous to predict this kind of thing, but I, I, if, unless right. he can raise his game and do a better job, I think, uh, you know, the, the, all the influential people around him, his chief of staff and the uh, Democratic leaders in the Congress and the senior cabinet members and so on, would would say to him, look, you know, this isn't working. You're a good man. We like you, but this isn't working. And, and, and we don't see how, it can work, and you really should. You know, you're getting tired, and it's it's difficult for you, and it's difficult for all of us. And but you should really consider retiring. There's no dishonor in retiring. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, and and but I I I think they would have misgivings unless they could get rid of Harris first, because I, I, the idea of her as president doesn't uh, give him many people much comfort either. Yeah, I'm, I'm looking at it, I'm thinking, and I wonder what you think, um, because you probably observed over the years that uh, a president or a prime minister or even just a CEO, there'll sometimes be people around them that, and the president or the CEO, especially later in their game and their life and their career, become real a real figurehead. And there's others that are really the power behind the throne. And it, it feels to me like the Susan Rice's of the world. You know, Susan Rice, who's the head of the, Dem- the Domestic Policy uh, Council, her uh, former deputy is now Anthony Blinken. Is he's now the Secretary of State? His other her other deputy is now the head of the CIA. That woman, I forget her name. Uh, it feels like those people are happy to be running things with a figurehead. 
figurehead. And, and maybe, as you point out, it would be worse to have someone like Kamala Harris who wants to actually be president. They can just keep running the sort of uh, uh, be the puppeteers behind the puppet. Yeah, uh, that would be fine if the result of it was competent government. <laughs> and and yeah, uh, I mean, yeah. if, Joe, if Joe Biden is a figurehead now, then then really he 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 really should retire because the people either that or he should sack everybody around him and get better people to do the work. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Know, All right, we got to run. Right? Yeah, yeah, okay. Look, yeah, go ahead. I'm not no, finish. An expert on the inner workings of the administration, but anyway, good speaking. Yeah. All right, Lord Conrad Black, the piece is Joe Biden is a total failure at American greatness. I'll put it up on social media. We've got to take a break, everybody. We'll be right back. It's Ed Martin here on a Pro-America Report, back in a moment. This is the Phyllis Schlafly Report, a daily commentary continuing the conservative pro-family legacy of Phyllis Schlafly. Now, here's the president of Phyllis Schlafly Eagles, Ed Martin. Texas Governor Greg Abbott's slow action on election integrity is a stark reminder of his hesitation to do the right thing when it's needed most. While Georgia, Florida, and Iowa enacted bills to restore some election integrity, Texas was slow to action. As Texas inches closer and closer to becoming a battleground state, the need for fair elections is clearer than ever. After dithering for almost a month, Governor Abbott finally called for a special session of the Texas legislature. But even in doing so, he was slow in designating the issues for the special session. Democrat legislators definitely deserve a good share of the blame for fleeing to Washington, D.C. rather than facing the music of the Texas special session, but Abbott does not get a pass on this either. In the final decision of its term, the U.S. Supreme Court gave states the green light to reduce election fraud by reining in lax voting procedures. Justice Alito, writing for the 6-3 court, firmly rejected a common liberal argument against voting procedure changes. Disparate impact is a leftist test for invalidating any law that might arguably have a greater impact against a minority group. It is possible to mine statistics and object to almost any law, even criminal laws, as impacting one demographic more than another. Justice Alito wrote for the Supreme Court, quote, We also do not find the disparate impact model employed in Title VII and Fair Housing Act cases useful here, end quote. Alito added that the Democrats' argument, quote, would also transfer much of the authority to regulate election procedures from the states to the federal courts, end quote. Alito thereby blocked attempts at judicial activism in interfering with good state election reforms. This conservative decision should help defeat the eight lawsuits that were filed against Georgia's new election law. Even Biden's Department of Justice has piled on with its own lawsuit to interfere with the reasonable Georgia law that cleans up its election system. Not surprisingly, the suit does not look promising. Americans want real election integrity. Governor Abbott and President Biden would do well to get on board before the train leaves without them. From Phyllis Schlafly Eagles, this has been the Phyllis Schlafly Report with Ed Martin. Election fraud has the power to destroy the America we know and love. Never again can we allow an election to be stolen. At phyllisschlafly.com, you'll find reasonable, workable strategies for assuring the integrity of every future election. Visit phyllisschlafly.com today. Thanks for listening, and join us again for the Phyllis Schlafly Report.
Welcome back. Welcome back. Ed Martin here on the Pro-America Report. And as we're wrapping things up, people heading into a great weekend. I hope you have a great weekend, everybody, and celebrate. Let me let me cover something that's coming up in the next week or two. A couple things coming up next week. Uh, we have next week, there will be testimony before the U.S. Senate by Secretary of State Blinken, Antony Blinken. And there's a lot of expectation that this could get really ugly. Really ugly because it's such a failure in Afghanistan and other things. We'll see. We'll see about that. Also coming up next week... The House and Senate, this is such insider bureaucratic stuff, but it's a massively important thing. You know, there is a rule in the U.S. Senate that anything that has to do with the budget, so budget reconciliation, it's called, does not uh, does not have to have the filibuster 60 Senate members. That's a Senate rule, right? Anything else does. So if you go to try to pass a, let's say you go to try to pass a, um, a bill in the U.S. Uh, Senate, the Democrats file a bill to, um, you know, force uh, schools to teach CRT. You need 60 votes to break the filibuster, and there's only 50 Democrats in the, in the Senate, right? So if you want to go and uh, pass a, a law that says that um, we give the Chinese uh, all the all the uh, you know uh, trade secrets they want, or we remove the tariffs from the Chinese uh, that Trump put in place, you need 60 votes. But on the budget bills, reconciliation, you just need 50% plus one. So what has happened in the past is reconciliation bills and will have stuff put into the bill that is not uh, really a budget bill. And then the parliamentarian has to rule on whether that's in order or not. So you next week, there will be a, a group of senior Senate Republican and Democrat staffers who will meet with the parliamentarian to make the argument that they should be able to include in the budget reconciliation bill, which therefore requires only 50% plus one votes, they should be able to include amnesty for illegals. And now, it's a, I don't even know how they're going to make the argument, the Democrats, because how is that a budget bill, right? That's a policy decision, right? And what they're doing is they're saying, you know, as to enforcement, and they're doing all kinds of things. And, and ultimately, it comes down to in the club of the Senate, if they vote to allow it, if the parliamentarian allow, votes to allow it, then it's allowed. But there's lots of arguments to be made. And the, the, hopefully, even the Democrats know it would be a disaster and they don't really want to do it. They just want to look like they're doing it. But that's what's going to happen. If they do get approval to include in the budget reconciliation bill amnesty for illegals and they get to vote on it, you will have just seen a, 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 the most dramatic transformation. We're talking about tens of millions of illegals who would either be immediately eligible for amnesty, meaning citizenship, or on a trend line, right, on a pathway that would, you know, eventually allow it. So that's a major thing happening, and you don't even know about it, right? You don't even know about it. I saw someone tweet on, uh, on, on t- uh, tweet something like, um, if you can't wag the dog overseas, you, you don't go with COVID, and meaning the Biden administration can't find a way to get people focused on something other than Afghanistan overseas. That's the old movie, Wag the Dog, where the, the president started a war to try to distract people. So the idea would be distracting from COVID. Certainly the president and his team think talking about COVID, talking about mandates and all that is better than seeing the images of Afghanistan. But meanwhile, up on Capitol Hill, they're figuring out whether to spend another $3.5 trillion. They're figuring out whether they can slam amnesty into the uh, reconciliation bill. They're moving along the path with lots of other stuff. And here's one nobody's paid attention to. I'll point to it. They have actually confirmed a bunch of judges. 
I, no one's bragging about it, probably because Biden doesn't want to brag about it because he doesn't want to bring attention to it for Republicans to complain about, meaning the, the grassroots, because they have gone about systematically. Now, Biden finally lost uh, a major appointment, the ATF appointment, Alcohol, Tobacco and Firearms, which is the division. I think it's in the DHS now, the Department of Homeland Security. I'm not 100% sure on that, but ATF is the one that manages us, uh, the uh, gun, uh, the gun control and uh, investigations and all. And they appointed a guy named Chipman or Chapman. We had somebody on the show talking about it. And he's a real far lefty. I mean, he's just a real far left on the issue. Well, he got blocked. And they withdrew him. They quietly withdrew him a day or two ago. And they'll put someone else up. That's the first real big block. You know, that's the first real big block of a nomination that we've seen. Otherwise, Biden's got what he wanted. So there you have it. There's a few wrap-up things. All right, let me finish just by uh, saying uh, great privilege. I mentioned Dean Pete Peterson. I also got to see Oz Guinness. Oz Guinness, the great uh, writer and uh, lecturer on Christianity and American uh, freedom. Uh, wonderful. He was uh, in Washington, D.C. with Pete Peterson. I saw him both speak. Extraordinary. If you haven't read Oz Guinness, he, is, uh, he really is a, a treasure at this point in history. His book, uh, the one I like the best and I read the, uh, with, uh, that I remember the best, I think I've read two or three of them, but is um, A Free People's Suicide, Sustainable Freedom and the American Future from, I think, 2012. Really, really good. All right, everybody, listen, I hope that you commemorate 9-11. If you um, get a chance, do a search on the Internet. Go to Pepperdine University's website. You'll see their extraordinary commemoration. Very thoughtfully done. And uh, like I said earlier, remember justly what happened because there's a lot of things that happened at 9-11 that are the best of America. Even as we mourn, we celebrate uh, that going forward. All right, have a great weekend, everybody. We'll talk to you Monday. It's Ed Martin here on the Pro-America Report. Talk to you then. This is the Pro-America Report on The Answer, San Diego.